let's get into our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through his whole life across all four of the gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're putting them all together to go through the life of Jesus in chronological order, in the order that the events happened. And today we're going to be in chapter 27 of the gospel of Matthew, studying the mission Jesus came to the earth to fulfill uniting man in relationship with God again. And as we pick up our study, Jesus has just willingly, confidently, and victoriously laid down his life for you and I on the cross. With a shout of, it is finished, he has taken his final breath. This week we're going to see his body buried and we're gonna take a look at what is perhaps the most incredible chapter in the entire Bible, the incomparable Isaiah 53. And I just wanna share that the reason we're taking so much time on this, uh, and I know you might be thinking, Jeff, you know, Jesus was only in the grave three days, but at this rate, he's gonna be in there three months if you don't get this study moving. The reason we're taking such care with the text is because all of scripture points toward this, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The whole Old Testament, everything before it points ahead to it. Almost everything in the New Testament points back to it. And the things that point ahead to the future are only possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So as I was just studying this, it was an intense week of study because there's so much in the Bible that is centered on this. This is the center of everything that's in the scriptures. And when you understand what Jesus has done for you, when you understand how he's loved you, it will change your life forever. It will change everything. So we want to make sure we get this right and we don't miss the importance of what it is we're studying. So let's jump right into our text for today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. Matthew 27, verse 51. It says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The moment after Jesus took his final breath, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. The temple was built around a design that God himself had given to the Israelites, and in the middle of the temple was this room, this place called the Holy of Holies. It was where the Ark of the Covenant used to be stored, but more importantly, it was the place where the very presence of God, his spirit, his manifest glory would dwell on the earth. Only the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and only on one day per year, Yom Kippur, and only after serious cleansing rituals, wearing a belt with bells around his waist and had a rope tied around his waist as well so that if he were struck dead by the glory of God, in case he was walking in with too much sin and he hadn't gone through the cleansing rituals properly, they would hear a ding of all these bells hitting the floor at the same time followed by no bells ringing at all, then they would know, okay, pull the rope so they can get the body out of the Holy of Holies without having to go in and dying themselves. And from everything we read in the scriptures, I think if you read it, you'll come to the same conclusion. It's most likely that the presence of God hadn't been in the Holy of Holies for hundreds of years at this point in the life of Israel, but they continued to act as though it were still there. The Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the temple by a massive, thick, red, floor-to-ceiling curtain, a veil. A.T. Robertson says in his commentary, this veil was 30 feet wide, 60 feet high, and 10 inches thick. 
10 inches thick. It was basically a wall. When they hung it, it took 100 priests to get it in place. And at the moment Jesus died, this massive curtain tears supernaturally from top to bottom. And I believe this took place to symbolize and make clear two truths. Firstly and most importantly, the way into God's presence was now open to everybody through a new and living way, Jesus Christ. Anybody could now go in. But also, I believe it was torn in two to reveal another truth, that God was no longer in the Holy of Holies. He had left the building. And the whole priesthood, that whole system had completely fallen away. Not only was this an indicator of God's judgment on the Jews that his presence had left, but it was also pointing ahead to what would happen just over 40 days later when that same presence of God, his spirit that dwelt in the Holy of Holies would come and dwell inside every believer, turning every believer into the temple of God. That's what took place on the day of Pentecost. We became the new temple. In Hebrews 10, I put it on your outline, the Apostle Paul explains everything that took place with the tearing of the veil like this. He says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, that's the holy of holies, and then underline this on your outlines, by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus. You see, it used to be only the high priest who could enter the holy of holies, and he would do it in fear, knowing that his sin could cost him his life. But Paul says now, we can come into the holy of holies with boldness, why? Because we're not entering on the basis of our righteousness, of our cleansing rituals, we're entering on the basis of the blood of Jesus, his payment for our sins, which means we enter the holy of holies, God's presence, spotless, blameless, holy, perfect, completely forgiven. Then Paul goes on and he says, by a new and living way, that's how we get into the presence of God now. And then underline this, which he consecrated for us. Jesus is the one who did it. Through the veil that is his flesh. So Paul is saying because Jesus' flesh was torn and broken, the curtain, the veil, and the temple could be torn and broken. Because Jesus was broken, the veil could be torn and we can have access to God. And then he goes on and says, and having a high priest over the house of God. There's no need for the old temple and priestly system because we now have a perfect high priest, Jesus Christ, who ministers to each of us individually and makes each of us individually a temple for his spirit and presence. So how do we respond to this glorious truth? Paul says, underline this, therefore, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Paul says, knowing all of this, here's what you should do. Draw near to the Lord. Take advantage of the access you have. Let him minister to you. Let him cleanse you from your sins. You don't need a priest. You have Jesus as your high priest. Let him bring healing to your conscience as you experience forgiveness because you can come to him yourself. So write this down. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus made himself our high priest and our spirits his temple. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus made himself our high priest and our spirits his temple. The challenge for you and I is to remember that the veil is torn. 
that the way is open, that God's presence is available and accessible to us. We don't need to sing a specific number of songs or read a specific number of chapters or be in a specific place or get ourselves together, but I haven't prayed in a month. The way is still open. But, but I've got sin in my life. The way is still open. I can enter because of Jesus. That's how I got into the presence of God in the first place. I got into relationship through Jesus. I stay in relationship with God through Jesus, not because of anything I do. I have access because of Jesus. The way is open. Back to verse 51. After the veil is torn, it says, and the earth quaked and rocks were split. And then I have the rest of 52 and 53 underlined. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This is one of those details I find a huge number of us as believers, even though we've read the whole Bible, when somebody stops and points this out to us, we're like, what? I never realized that was actually in there. It's one of those details where if you just read this in passing, you don't understand how wild this is. So just before Jesus takes his final breath on the cross and gives up his life, he cries out, it is finished, to telestai. There's an earthquake, the veil in the temple is torn, Rocks split open, tombstones, gravestones, and sepulchers shatter and fall over as graves are opened up and exposed. And then we read that it says, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after, now get this, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So actually understand what it says. It says at the moment of Jesus' death, these graves are opened up and they're exposed. And I suggest to you that these dead bodies and bones and, and remains are visible for people to see. But then after the resurrection of Jesus, these bodies are transformed into resurrected bodies that begin appearing to people around Jerusalem. That's what it actually says. Now you might be thinking, Jeff, there's no way that people are just gonna leave graves and, and tombs like open for three days. Normally you'd be right, but it's the middle of a feast. It's the middle of Passover. What happens if you touch a dead body at this time? You become ceremonially unclean and you can't participate in any of the Passover festivities. So they probably had a scenario like, man, someone should do something about this. And everyone's like, yeah. Someone should do something about this. Okay, see you guys later. That's pretty much what happened, and everyone agreed. We'll do something about it in three days. And a lot of these graves would have been cut into the side of a cliff or a mountain, and you would have had to walk in because the average sort of sepulcher family grave at this time would be a room with a couple of shelves carved into the rock and a stone slab. And the idea is that a dead body would be put on the slab, wrapped, it would decay over time. When the next person died, someone would go in and scoop up the bones of that person who had been on the slab, put them in a jar, an ossuary, and put that on the shelf, then put the new body on the stone slab to begin decaying. But nobody wants to have anything to do with dead bodies or graves because it's the middle of Passover. They don't want to miss out on it. So these graves are just open, and they stay that way for three days 
to prove that the people in them are still dead, then after Jesus is raised from the dead, these people begin walking out of their graves in new, eternal, resurrected bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it's on your outlines, the Apostle Paul writes that Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits, underlying first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was the first ever man to rise from the dead and receive a resurrected, eternal, redeemed body. After he was raised from the dead, they began to receive their resurrected bodies and they began appearing to people in Jerusalem. That's what's important. Jesus was the first resurrected from the dead. So there's no way that these guys got their resurrected bodies before Jesus did. It's not possible theologically or in a chronological time flow. So this is just mind-blowing to help us understand what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, to help people at that time in that place understand what he had accomplished, that Jesus was giving life where there had been death. The Lord has a whole bunch of known-to-be-dead people walk around Jerusalem and appear to hundreds of people in eternal, resurrected bodies. Now, nothing more is written about these people in the Bible, which makes it most likely, my personal speculation would be, that they appeared to people in and around Jerusalem for probably a similar amount of time to what Jesus was on the earth for between his resurrection and his ascension. So they're there for a couple of weeks, perhaps, and when Jesus returns to heaven, they probably return with him at that time. But it's seems to be the case from scripture that these people don't go on to go and live another 30 years. They're in resurrected eternal bodies. Pretty crazy part of scripture. Verse 54, so when the centurion, this would have been the centurion in charge of the whole crucifixion, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly saying truly this was the son of God. Luke's gospel records it this way on your outlines. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts. It's an expression of remorse, pained regret, and returned. And Mark tells us, so when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God, when the centurion and soldiers saw the strength and power with which Jesus shouted, it is finished before his final breath, when they felt the earthquake, when they saw the dark sky, a fear seized their hearts, the fear of suddenly understanding that Jesus was the son of God. And the original language that's used there implies the centurion meant what he said and was speaking out loud the shared feelings of his soldiers, meaning that in all likelihood, these soldiers became believers. Verse 55, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking from afar. This was a group of women who had been following Jesus since the early days of his ministry up north in Galilee. And when they could, they would travel with Jesus and the disciples as deaconesses, ministering to the practical needs of Jesus' ministry, things like meals. Verse 56, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, that would be James the Less, worst nickname ever, and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, that would be Salome. 
Some of these women had earlier been at the foot of the cross with Mary, the mother of Jesus. By this point, it seems they've become unable to watch Jesus' suffering up close and personal, but they still feel unable to leave him, and so they're watching from a greater distance in contrast to the disciples other than John who are nowhere to be found. Mary Magdalene, you might remember, became a disciple of Jesus after seven demons were cast out of her, and she's always listed first in this group of women, meaning that she was most likely sort of their leader. And then there was Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph, who were other disciples of Jesus, not part of the 12, but possibly part of the 70 disciples, the wife of Clopas. And then there was Salome, the mother of Zebedee's sons, Zebedee's sons being the disciples James and John, the author of this gospel. These same women will be present at Jesus' burial and at his resurrection as eyewitnesses. While that may not seem like a big deal, it's one of the most unique and compelling pieces of evidence that point to the reliability of the Gospels because the testimony of woman was not legally accepted in Israel at this time. Meaning that if you were trying to fake something, like the resurrection of Jesus, the last people you would choose to have as your eyewitnesses would be women because they were not considered to be legal witnesses at this time. And yet the Gospels do that. Contrary to the culture at the time, the Lord as a group of women play a central role in witnessing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The point being that while their testimony may not have been accepted in culture at that time, it's obviously good enough if you're actually interested in the truth. It's very interesting. At this one, I'm going to ask you to turn ahead in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and John 19.31. John 19.31. It says this, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, the preparation day is just the day before a Sabbath, because no work could be done on a Sabbath day, things would need to be prepared the day before, hence the term preparation day. For us, we would say like, hey, it's preparation day, you're gonna wanna do any cooking or anything like that you need to do on preparation day. You're gonna wanna make sure that everybody does their laundry today because you're not allowed to do it on a Sabbath. Get ready for the Sabbath on preparation day, the day before. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. I gotta tell you guys something here for you Bible students. The Sabbath being referred to there is not a regular Saturday Sabbath. There were and are seven additional non-Saturday Sabbaths that take place every year. They're known as high days or high Sabbaths. And the high Sabbath being referred to here is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I know you're thinking, Jeff, that's so great, and I still don't care. Here's why you should. In Matthew 12, 40, earlier in his ministry, Jesus had said, I put this on your outlines, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, speaking of himself, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus explicitly said he would be in the grave for three days and three nights. No matter what kind of mathematical or exegetical gymnastics you do, you cannot fit three days and three nights between a Friday crucifixion and a Sunday morning resurrection. It's impossible, there's no way to do it. Which means Good Friday, as we know it and celebrate it, could not have been the day of the week upon which Jesus died. 
And that completes my one church tradition ruined per sermon quota for the week. Without delving into it, Jesus died either on a Wednesday or a Thursday. I think most likely a Thursday. And I share that information about the high Sabbath so that when you see this in the Gospel of John, you'll understand the Sabbath being referred to there did not have to be on a Saturday. It was a high Sabbath, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so that could have been a Friday Sabbath. That would have been no problem at all and probably the most likely scenario. So because that was the case, we go on and the word says, the Jews asked Pilate that those on the cross, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The idea is because the Jews weren't supposed to do any work on a Sabbath, they didn't want to be taking bodies off the cross and preparing them for burial on a Sabbath. And there were Jews who had just been crucified. So they asked Pilate to give the order to break the legs of the men on the cross because if their legs were broken, they would no longer be able to push themselves up into position where their lungs could inhale air. So with broken legs, you would suffocate and death would come relatively quickly. That was the reason that they gave to Pilate for wanting the legs broken, specifically of Jesus. The real reason is most likely that the Jewish religious leaders were still concerned about a riot possibly breaking out among people who were in Jerusalem for Passover and were fans of Jesus. So their whole thinking here is let's get Jesus dead and buried off the cross ASAP so that nobody can rally around the cross or anything like that. Verse 32, then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, the first thief, and of the other who was crucified with him, with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. So when they get to the body of Jesus, they find he's already dead. And to verify this absolutely, one of the soldiers pierces his side. And you might be having a a Sunday school image that they just stick it in there, but the idea is they thrust it up from an angle because he's crucified. The spear goes in the side of Jesus, as probably would have been his left side, and actually punctures his heart is what it does. So they're making sure that he's absolutely dead. And when he does that, blood and water spills out of either Jesus' heart or his lower chest cavity. Physiologically, blood and water are only present when the heart has already ruptured, literally torn and broken, and uh, blood and water spill out of the central heart into the pericardium, that sac which is around the human heart. And all you really need to know is that that is medically accepted today as emphatic evidence that Jesus was dead at the time the spear was thrust into him. It's astounding that the Gospels, the Word of God, anticipate the objections that people will raise in the future about the resurrection, even to this day. Well, maybe Jesus had only passed out on the cross. Not possible for several reasons, but here's one. The soldier verified Jesus' death by thrusting a spear into his side and up into his heart, causing blood and water to spill out, proving that Jesus was already dead before the spear was thrust into his side. If the soldier had ever taken anyone off the cross while they were still alive, the soldier probably would have been killed for dereliction of duty, for failing at his job. So you can trust that Roman soldier took his task seriously. And I have to keep moving so we can get through this, but just two quick observations for you Bible students to chew on. In the scriptures, to sum it up, blood represents justification 
And water generally represents purification. You can mull that over. Other observation is that woman came from the side of the first Adam, while Jesus, the second Adam, gave birth to the church out of his side when blood and water flowed. Verse 35, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John is just saying, I was there, I saw these things happen with my own eyes, I'm telling you the truth. Verse 36, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. In God's law, it says that when a Passover lamb was killed and sacrificed, not one of its bones was to be broken. Jesus came as the final, the ultimate Passover lamb, the sacrifice to take away all sins of the whole world for all time, and that's why not one of his bones would be broken. The type needed to hold true. And John says it all happened this way exactly as the Old Testament prophets said it would. Verse 37, and again, Another scripture says, now please note, John doesn't say that this other scripture was fulfilled, and the reason is because the scripture he's about to reference is yet to be fulfilled. And yet again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. John is quoting a very interesting prophecy from back in Zechariah 12, Zechariah 12.10, we've read it many times, that talks about the coming time in the future when the hearts of the Jews will be turned back to Jesus and they'll recognize him as their savior and it talks about the heartbreak they're gonna feel when they have that moment of realization that they as a people help murder their own Messiah. Zechariah 12.10 says this, it's on your outlines, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, then, and then underline this, they will look on me whom they pierced. They will look on me whom they pierced. So when Jesus returns to the earth at that time, at the end of the great tribulation, the beginning of the millennial kingdom, he will still bear the scars of his crucifixion because it says they'll look upon me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So John takes a moment in his gospel to tell us, his readers, that the Lord knew beforehand how this would all unfold and the Lord has a future plan to win back the hearts of the Jewish people. He's not done with them, not by a long shot. Verse 38 After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. Luke's gospel tells us some additional details about this Joseph. It says, now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, that means a member of the Sanhedrin, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. So he had not agreed that Jesus should die. He hadn't been a part of that whole charade of a trial. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. In other words, he believed the teachings of Jesus. Matthew's gospel tells us he was a rich man, and we know he was a big deal because he was able to get a personal audience with the governor. None of us can do that, but he shows up at Pilate's place at the Fortress Antonia and says, hey, I need a favor. And Pilate says, sure thing, I can do this for you. It was a significant favor because legally the body was only supposed to go to the next of kin, But Joseph asks Pilate for a favor, and Pilate grants him that wish. 
Mark's gospel tells us also that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, that it took courage to go and ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, why did it take courage? Because up to this point, as John has just told us, Joseph has secretly been a disciple of Jesus. And John actually didn't think very much of these kinds of men. Back in John 12, he told us, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So John actually takes a moment earlier in his gospel to call out and look down upon these religious leaders who actually believed in Jesus but wouldn't go public with their faith because as John puts it, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And Joseph would have been one of those guys earlier but something has changed in this Joseph because there's gonna be no way to hide the fact that he is the one who goes and takes down the body of Jesus from the cross. Everyone's gonna hear about this very, very quickly and the Jewish religious leaders are gonna find out and when they do, it will cost Joseph everything. He'll be kicked out of the Sanhedrin. He'll most likely be kicked out of the synagogue as well, excommunicated from Jewish life on every level, social, relational, financial, vocational, you name it. Even by handling a dead body, he's not gonna be able to participate in Passover. It's gonna cost him his life, even though he's gonna continue to live for a while. But Joseph has come to realize the truth about who Jesus really is. And once you realize who Jesus is, you'll be ready to pay whatever price needs to be paid to follow him. And we'll soon find out that he's not the only one who's had this sort of transformation. Mark also tells us this interesting detail. Pilate marveled that he, Jesus, was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. As we mentioned last week, After Jesus was scourged, he was left more disfigured than any living man has ever been. Even though Jesus was fully man, he was still fully God, meaning that the only way he could die is if he voluntarily gave up his spirit and chose to, which also means that Jesus was able to take more of a beating and continue living than any person has ever been able to in the history of the world. And that's why he's able to still summon the strength to carry his own cross all the way from the Fortress Antonia to the city gate. And it's why he's able to shout, it is finished, before he takes his final breath. And so knowing the strength that Jesus still had at the time of his crucifixion, despite the overwhelming trauma of the scourging and the beatings, Pilate is surprised to learn that Jesus is dead after only six hours on the cross because if he had that much strength left when he got to the cross, crucifixion was designed to stretch out over days and if you were still alive when you got there it would be unusual to actually die this quickly the reason is that Jesus chose the moment of his death and so before giving Jesus's body to Joseph Pilate says go make sure that he's actually dead and has the centurion verify that Jesus has actually died At this point, I know we're jumping around. I'm gonna ask you to go back to Matthew 27 in your Bibles, Matthew 27, verse 59. And we're just flipping around to get the most complete account that we can. Matthew 27, verse 59. It says, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Mark tells us it was fine linen and that Joseph had bought it specifically for the purpose of burying Jesus. 
And John tells us about someone else who shows up to help prepare the body of Jesus for burial. Should be on your outlines. It says, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. This is such a a beautiful event because first Joseph of Arimathea steps forward out of the shadows, out of his secret faith and risks everything by going public with the fact that he's a disciple of Jesus. And then who shows up to join him in preparing the body of Jesus for burial? Nicodemus, a man who other than Jesus was in all likelihood the most prominent religious teacher in Israel. The man who quizzed Jesus in John 3 about what it meant to be saved, to be born again. And a man who came to have that conversation with Jesus at night. Why? Because he didn't want to take the risk of being ostracized by being perceived as a follower of Jesus. And now these two men come together and go public with their faith following the death of Jesus. And it's my personal speculation that they expected something to happen following Jesus' death. And the reason I think that is because these two learned men don't have their faith crushed by the death of Jesus. Rather, their faith is strengthened. And if you didn't think something was gonna happen, then the death of Jesus would seem to be kind of everything going off the rails. But instead, these two men seem to be saying, No, this is really happening and unfolding the way it's meant to. And we have no choice but to go all in with following Jesus at this point. At the moment when the disciples were fleeing for their lives because they thought everything was falling apart, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are coming together. So I personally believe it's my speculation that they expected something was going to happen that Jesus was not going to stay in the grave. And they would add these ground powders made from myrrh and aloes among the linen strips as they wrapped the body to mask the odor of death. The actual amount when you translate it into our vernacular and measurements is about 65 pounds. But the point is that by anyone's reckoning, that amount of myrrh of aloes was an enormous amount and would have been very, very costly. Verse 60, and laid it in his new tomb which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Luke tells us no one had ever been buried in this tomb before. And John tells us it was located in a garden that was right next to where Jesus was crucified. This was a tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had purchased for his family. It had those shelves for the the ossuaries with the bones in them. And it had that stone slab where you could lay a dead body. And even... This little detail is a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for each of us. You see, he went into Joseph's grave so that Joseph could spend eternity out of the grave. Jesus went into your grave, into my grave, so that we could spend eternity out of the grave. When Jesus was born, there was a Joseph present to wrap him in linen strips, swaddling cloths, and lay him in a stone manger, a stone feeding trough. And when Jesus died, there was a Joseph present to once again wrap him in linen strips and lay him in stone. From the beginning of his life, Jesus was born to die. There's no question. Verse 61, and Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, the mother of Joseph, sitting opposite the tomb. 
The detail that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, and Mary Magdalene are, are all there most likely together witnessing Jesus' body being buried seems to be in the scriptures for only one reason that I can tell. To refute anyone who would say, well, maybe the followers of Jesus got confused and went to the wrong grave on resurrection morning and they found it empty because it was really not even the same grave that Jesus was buried in. It's not possible. The gospels record the names of two of the women who witnessed Jesus' body being placed in the tomb and the large stone being rolled in front of it and sealed. And those women are present at his resurrection as well. There's no way they got confused about where Jesus was buried. They saw him go into the grave. And how surprising it must have been to these two Marys who were from up north in Galilee to see Joseph and Nicodemus preparing the body of Jesus and putting it in the tomb. Because these two men were from down south, Jerusalem and Judea. They were both prominent religious leaders, part of the class of men who had come together to arrange for the murder of Jesus, even though they weren't individually involved. And yet here they were, having asked for the body of Jesus, preparing it by hand themselves, and now laying it carefully in a brand new tomb that belonged to Joseph. And to this day, the kingdom of God is being populated with unlikely candidates. And I'm so thankful for that. Verse 62, on the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Pretty funny that the enemies of Jesus remember his claims better than the disciples of Jesus do. These guys are still worried that something is gonna happen. Verse 64, therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. It cracks me up when people say the resurrection was a hoax. The, the disciples, they just stole the body of Jesus and claimed he had risen from the dead. Well, do you realize the enemies of Jesus were actively concerned about that very scenario unfolding and the Bible details the specific steps they took to make sure that couldn't happen. And this is what it says. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. That means Pilate gave them 50 soldiers to guard the tomb of Jesus. Go your way, make it as secure as you know how. Underline that. Make it as secure as you know how. Interesting phrase from Pilate. You can almost hear something underneath that. There are some, including the Egyptian Coptic church, that hold to the tradition that Pilate became a believer. And those who hold to that belief point to the fact that he declared Jesus was innocent. He wrote the placard, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, making the acrostic Yahweh placed above the head of Jesus on the cross. And those who hold the belief that Pilate became a believer, also point to his words here, make it as secure as you can as a skepticism on Pilate's part that these Jews would be able to do anything to stop Jesus from doing whatever it was that Jesus was going to do. I have no idea if Pilate will be in heaven or not, but I like what Chuck Missler says. He says, it wouldn't surprise me because the Lord is like that. I just love that. The Lord is like that. Verse 66 I think we get to heaven, there's gonna be a lot of like, you? Really? Huh, 
So <laughs> I'm sure someone will be saying it to each of us too. Really? <laughs> Verse 66, so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. What that means is that they placed a seal across the tomb, an official Roman seal that carried with it the death penalty for anyone who tampered with it. So they verified and made sure, okay, the body's in the tomb, the stone is in front of it, it's sealed, a whole bunch of Roman soldiers in front of it. They did that specifically to make sure that the disciples couldn't steal the body of Jesus and then claim that he had risen from the dead. And then Luke's gospel tells us they rested on the Sabbath. Who is the they? It's everybody. The Marys, the Romans, the Jewish religious leaders, they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Jesus was dead in the grave and everybody thought it was over. Everybody thought it was over. Around 700 years before the crucifixion of Jesus, 700 years, the prophet Isaiah was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down what is perhaps the most moving, beautiful, and heartbreaking chapter in the entire Bible. If you would, turn to Isaiah 53. I'll give you a good amount of time for those of you that need to go to the index page of your Bible first. No judgment. It's been called the fulcrum of scripture, and it contains prophecies so specific, there is no explanation possible other than an author who exists outside of time and can perfectly foresee the future. Keep in mind as well, this was recorded two centuries before crucifixion is even invented. It says, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. The idea is simply that when Jesus Messiah came, he would look common, he would look ordinary. There'd be nothing about his physical appearance that would make you go, wait a minute, are you the son of God? There'd be nothing about that. He wouldn't be uncommonly good looking or anything like that. Verse three, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I have that underlined, acquainted with grief. Because when I tell you that Jesus understands your pain and your suffering, that's not just hyperbole. He experienced more pain and grief in his life than you or I ever will. He really does understand. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It's painting a very strange picture of who Messiah, the Savior of the world, would be and how he would be received by people. Those who looked at Jesus upon the cross thought that he must have been cursed by God, and they were right. But they were wrong about the reason. The reason Jesus was cursed by God was because he became your sin and mine. He became that curse. Verse five, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And we see the imagery here of Jesus as a Passover lamb. And we saw him refuse to answer so many of his accusers during his illegal trial, especially Herod, to fulfill this here. Verse eight, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? In other words, he's not gonna have any physical earthly children. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And the more you dig into it, the more you'll find there. He had done no violence. In other words, he was tried and sentenced, but for no crime. He hadn't committed any crime. There was no deceit in his mouth. He didn't tell any lie. He didn't spread any untruth. He died with the wicked, crucified between two thieves, but his body was buried with the rich in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea. Very, very hard to pull those details off when you're dead. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. This translation's a little clumsy. It just means even though the price was terrible, God was willing to pay it so that we could become his children. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Underline verse 11 if you don't have it underlined. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That verse floors me because it says when Jesus looks at what the work of the cross has accomplished, he will be satisfied. As much as it astounds you and I, that means that if we could ask Jesus, was it worth it, he would embrace us and say, absolutely, because you're here with me. It was worth it. So it astounds me that it says he will see the labor of his soul and be satisfied and say, yeah, that was worth it. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's you and I. We are the transgressors. And Jesus loved us with his blood and his body and his life in ways and on levels and in dimensions that we will only fully be able to understand, comprehend, and appreciate in eternity. And my prayer today is that wherever you are in your walk with Jesus, as we study the cross, as you see the cross, this one question would be banished from your mind, depart from your lips, and vacate your soul forever. The question, does Jesus love me? Listen to me, I, I know we all have moments of doubt, we all have moments of weakness, but if you ever find yourself still wondering if Jesus loves you, hear me on this, you do not understand the cross. If you ever wonder if Jesus loves you, you do not yet understand the cross. And you need to desperately. There's room in your walk for questions. There's room to have even moments of doubt and, and 
a lack of understanding, but there's no room to wonder if Jesus loves you, ever, even for a moment, because the cross has answered that question, settled that issue emphatically forever. Communion is the only reminder that is needed. He loves you. He loves you. And if you're still wondering about that, would you take communion today and say, Lord, help me to understand. Because I don't believe that you can be a believer, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Christ who understands the cross and still have moments where you think, I wonder if Jesus loves me. It's not possible. Because nobody here should leave or needs to leave and ever wonder again, does Jesus really love me? When Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus saw what Jesus went through, his scourging and the agony of the cross, they couldn't stay secret followers anymore. They couldn't be casual Christians. And when you and I understand what Jesus has done for us, we will inevitably respond in the same way. Whatever it costs, Lord, I'm in. If it means dying for you today, I'm, I'm in. If it means dying to myself every day, which it does, I'm in. Everything in the Christian life flows from the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's our motivation, it's our peace, it's our hope, it's our confidence, it's our assurance, it's our access to the presence of God, it's the sealing of our salvation, it's, it's everything. So if there's one thing that we have to get as believers, it's the cross, the cross. The cross is the end of doubting the goodness of God. It is the end of wondering if he loves you. And it's the end of wondering if you're really saved. It's the end of all those things. If you're struggling with any of them, go back to the cross. Go back to the cross and become confident, become certain, become sure. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes and let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you that we need not wonder if we are loved. We need not wonder if our sins are covered. Because the cross answers emphatically that we are loved and that we are forgiven. Jesus, would you forgive us for any moments we've had of doubting those two unquestionable truths. And Father, I pray for anyone here who is wrestling with those very issues. Would you settle them right now by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus? The same Holy Spirit that resided in the Holy of Holies and now resides in us Father, would you speak with clarity to anyone who is unsure that they are loved by you? And would you settle that issue in the name of Jesus today? May every single one of us walk out absolutely certain, absolutely confident that we are forgiven and we are loved by you. Thank you for the blood, Jesus. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for walking among us, 
Thank you for being buried among us so that you could lift us up out of the grave to be with you forever. And Lord, we just marvel that you would go through all that and then be satisfied knowing that what you gained was us and that you were pleased with that. It's astonishing, Jesus, the value that you have placed on us by laying down your life. We don't understand it, but we are so thankful. We are so grateful, Jesus. We want to follow you every moment, every day, whatever it costs, whatever it looks like, because that's the only appropriate response to what you've done for us, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.